welcome to the 30th episode of the Movie Scramble podcast. None of the three of us can quite believe we've made it to this landmark, but thanks to your support and the, the two of you for continuing to listening as we go along this journey together. On today's episode, or tonight's episode, we will be discussing the 1922 F.W. Murnau classic Nosferatu, which is fitting because I'm horrifically sunburned from yesterday, so it would appear that I have something in common with the Count. We are both allergic to sunlight. And I am joined, as ever, by John and Simi. John, how are you? Well, I'm <laughs> well. <laughs> That's about it. I managed <laughs> to avoid going out in the sun as well. So because I go bright red more than most people. Um, I think it's my Irish Catholic upbringing. It just makes me <laughs> totally susceptible to, to any sort of daylight whatsoever. I've been off work for a week and a half on leave, but not off and on the sick. And I've done pretty much nothing. And it's been great. Apart from watch lots of telly and films and stuff. So uh, I am going a bit stir crazy, to be perfectly honest. But I'm going to be doing some stuff this week, which will hopefully get me active again. But apart from that, yeah, just the usual. Simi, how are you? I am still suffering from Saturday. Um, oh. so <laughs> I am still feeling the effects of the alcohol. And I, I'm really just getting too old for this shit. <laughs> what were you drinking? Oh, that's the thing. I was drinking some beers and that was going well. The Prosecco came out cocktails started getting made and before you know it somebody's bought a bottle of buck fast and that's getting drunk and that's been oh, a downhill yeah that is fine didn't end well as you can no i can imagine my, <laughs> still got that kind of post drunk sheen to my face that's not the sun <laughs> i just thought that was like a healthy glow no there's nothing healthy about this glow <laughs> feel very well, much like the main character in their movie we're going to discuss in a second and that iconic scene at the end that's what I feel like. I was going to say, speaking of the undead, <laughs> today's episode, as I said earlier, is going to focus on the 1922 F.W. Murnau German Expressionist horror classic and all the surviving vampire movie Nosferatu. The story of which is so similar to Bram Stoker's Dracula that Stoker's widow did in fact attempt to burn every copy of the movie she could possibly find because she was so horrified at her husband's work being plagiarised. It tells the story of Hutter, played by Gustav von Wangenheim, who travels to the land of phantoms, Transylvania, to visit Count Orlok, played by Max Schreck, in order to sell him the house across the road which all sounds very mundane for a, a vampire film. It is a German expressionist classic. And if you're kind of expecting lots of blood and gore, there's none of that. But it's extremely atmospheric. It's thrilling. It's very dreamlike. And it's probably quite an accessible silent movie because the plot is so familiar. John, what were your thoughts on watching it? I was really surprised by this film, basically because I was so familiar with vampires and the whole Count Dracula story that I thought I knew what this film would be like and I was unprepared for just how good it was. It's a film that, as you say, is made in 1922, but it's kind of informed how we digest horror films now. A lot of the elements in the film, the way that it builds up the suspense, the way, the way that it makes people look really, really stupid in their approach, and how it actually presents the, the monster is stuff that we have seen time and time again, and this is probably the earliest example of it, and it really, really stands up as a film. I he was immensely impressed by it. Sammy, did you agree? I do agree. And it is both we said there, the film is so familiar. And it's not just the plot that we've seen 
Amalgam Time since, or the fact that some of the shots are so iconic that we've seen them in pop culture or referenced so many times. It's, everything that film is just so incredibly familiar. And as you're saying, John, it's kind of one of the earliest examples of movies that have almost become cliched. This never did feel cliched to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's executed really well. It's like, it's actually apparently the first example of a cinema history, in cinema history rather, where a vampire is shown as being allergic to sunlight. So every sort of subsequent film that has this trope afterwards can trace it back to Nosferatu. I thought it was really topical because they're talking about a plague and people are being told to stay indoors. But actually, at the time this was released, the Spanish flu was only four years prior. So it would have felt really topical then as well and probably would have been quite frightening because there's scenes of, you know, rats running through the street and people's doors being marked with a cross and coffins, you know, parading up and down the city. But actually, given that we're living through a pandemic just now, whilst we're not quite at that extreme, it did feel kind of like a similar uh, situation to what's going on just now. And as you see, I think it avoids all the kind of cliches of, of melodrama, although there are a couple of examples of, so like Knock, the estate agent sort of nudges to camera and goes, oh, you'll have to put in a lot of sweat for this deal and maybe some blood. And he's practically doing this sort of twirly moustache thing, but that's as far as it goes. It never, it sort of, it doesn't teeter towards the ridiculous. It does really focus on sort of building that atmosphere throughout. It was interesting how estate agents, even a century on, are still regarded as being complete <laughs> bastards, which I find quite interesting. Basically, the plot of the story, a plot to begin with, is the estate agent and his sidekick, Hutter, are trying to make money off of this Count Orlock by selling him uh, a disused house. Now, Orlock wanted uh, a house that was not in use, and they decided to try and sell him this abandoned, it looked like an abandoned factory or something. There was no windows or anything <laughs> in it. And it just, it kind of smacks of capitalism and work. You know, it's the way that it kind of it goes. You're, they're trying to make a quick buck out of everything and they're ignoring all of the foreshadowing that seems to be happening. And because of that, it, it does play into the whole plague thing and obviously the, the situation we're in now. But it's actually laid out in black and white in front of Hutter. He's sitting reading a book and it says, don't go up to the castle. Oh, no, 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 I'll be fine with that. You know, don't go out at night, you know. <laughs> uh, even in the very opening scene of it, he meets somebody in the street when he's going to his work and he says, ah, you can't escape your destiny. He's like, away with the old man, you know. I'm <laughs> I'm off to make lots of money, you know. What could possibly go wrong? It's, it's very clever in that sort of aspect. Yeah, it's got very timeless themes, but I'd, I'd like to go back to that plague comparison you were talking about, Mary, because I think you may have inadvertently created a new COVID conspiracy that the virus doesn't <laughs> exist and it's just a cover to vampires. hide the vampires. Honestly, if I disappear, you know that I've been onto something. <laughs> but yeah, I, I totally agree with everything you're saying there, John, regarding that. And I find that a very accessible film to watch. Now, it's German expressionist silent movie for 1922, yet you're watching it and it's because it's so familiar. I could have watched this without English subtitles translating the, the cars for me and still follow the plot entirely. But that's, that's also a testament as well to how visually, how well directed it is visually because all the scenes mean something and it's clear the actions and motives of the characters just by their actions alone. I thought it was incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's testament to the acting style at the time, although they're kind of wrapped up in this sort of melodrama because it all is quite dreamlike and quite over the top. It never feels you know, ridiculous. There are some really gorgeous reaction shots. Like I think it's the when the jailer and the doctor come to find Nock 
in the prison and there's this really beautiful still of the two of them for it literally it lasts for two or three seconds but it's just that close-up of their faces that really sort of it makes you laugh because like they're doing this sort of confused pose but it's just it looks like a painting it's like a still life and there's obviously really really iconic shots of the character of Nosferatu whether it's you know coming up the stairs or emerging from the below deck of the ship or sort of appearing through the the door and all of that is executed really well because there are some quite interesting sort of camera techniques and camera wipes that I think are being done that would probably have been quite unusual for that time. There's a shot when they're at sea where a sailor sort of imagines a phantom of Nosferatu and you just sort of see the character like kind of not shimmer because it's not twilight but sort of (laughs) he does kind of appear and then disappear in this sort of glittery way and I imagine that seeing that in 1922 as an audience member in the cinema must have been really scary because nothing like that had been done before especially not with a character who looked so dramatic as well you know you've got the the huge eyebrows the pointy ears the fangs that are quite specifically made to look like rats teeth as well which continues this notion of the plague it's just it's so well executed and it's, it's so iconic and as both of you have said it feels very familiar even if you haven't seen it before yeah there was a lot of interest in cinematography in this film the way that they they framed a lot of shots that you could actually stop this film just about any point and look at it and the way that it's framed it could could just be taken as a picture as a still because it's really well composed and it's using the visual art of cinema as its language as you said Thomas something that's been developed over the course of what it was cinema was just over 20 years old at that point and they had to learn how to tell a story without the use of words and kind of at the top of their game round about that time they've really put a lot of thought into it and it just it just works spectacularly well and like you say Mary they, they used a lot of techniques there was one I noticed quite early on that they changed the sort of the frame rate so that I think it was it was like horse and carriage and it was coming downhill and it was going yeah. really fast but they changed the speed of it and they, they, they did it really really well because your focus is on the horse and the, the carriage and everything coming down rather than anything that's going on around it so a bit if you look closely you can see that the frame has been changed slightly but it doesn't take away from it. It's really, really cleverly done. It gives you that sort of sense of dread that something's rolling towards you really, really fast and it's not something you really want. You know, and the guy just points in the carriage and he goes, uh, okay. You think, no, no, man, come on. You need you need to have a wee think about what you're doing here. But greed, it all comes down to greed. That's what it is, isn't it? This has all become very socialist, John. I thought in your house with the, the servants that you have that you'd be all for horses and carriage to take well, people we, up to your... <laughs> we have to follow a number of them over the last couple of months, but, you know, things will return to normal before Christmas, before the Yuletide season. I guess back <laughs> I shit by the horses. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, for me, what I love so much about this film is the sort of myth around not only... Nosferatu and this sort of as you said John there's the book on you know vampires and don't talk to them because you know they're just there to drain your blood but what I love is the actual myth surrounding Max Schreck himself so I don't know if any of you guys have seen Shadow the Vampire I love it so it's a movie where Willem Dafoe plays Max Schreck making Nosferatu 
but there's so many rumours at the time that Shrek was actually a vampire and that he sort of became obsessed with this role and sort of took it into his own hands and started finding his own victims and there's so many people that are keen to point out that Shrek's surname is really close to the German Der Schrecken which is German for terror like there's so many wee bits like that and then Nosferatu might come from the Greek Nosferus meaning plague carrier there's all this like wordplay going on that you're not even seeing because it's all kind of off screen and I just I love this film for that reason as well like the, the kind of idea that this was the first sort of PR campaign to sell tickets that they just sort of told everyone that Shrek was a vampire in order to get bums <laughs> on seats in 1922 I think it's really cool the first viral marketing campaign aha well I kind of no pun intended right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're right I mean it, it does look legit and this is a film that's almost almost 100 years old and when you look at the effects the practical effects of them it, it, it does it doesn't look a man you could be convinced that's actually how he looks because he was quite ugly Murnau thought he was quite ugly and that's why it was sort of minimal makeup just the kind of the shadowing and the, the teeth apparently like the rest of it's pretty much him it's a shame isn't it why'd you get the part <laughs> you're the ugliest <laughs> But I think, I think, is it only nine minutes out of a 90-minute runtime that the character actually appears on screen, which is pretty amazing given that, like, all as we were saying, all of these images are so well-known and he's such an iconic character, and yet he's, like, you know, a tenth of the film is actually he's, he appears. Yeah, you know, like Michael Keaton in Beetlejuice. Yeah, similar sort of thing. Well, it's yeah. the classic horror, isn't it, that you keep the, the monster away from the screen as much as possible because it has a greater impact. Yeah. Did it, did it with Jaws, for instance, but that was obviously, there was, there was reasons, there was mechanical reasons behind that, but in most good horror films, you do not see the terror until much later in the film because it's it's a build-up thing. The Nosferatu character, I know you, you meet the Count reasonably early on, but you don't meet the Nosferatu character until something like 33 minutes in, where Hutter opens up the coffins and then basically shites himself. <laughs> so, and then it's later after that, you only, like you say, Mary, you only catch glimpses of him. There's the wee speeded-up sequence where he's losing all the dirt onto the carts, in the coffins and then he puts himself in the coffin you think he's missed the lid but then <laughs> the lid magically goes on itself and the horses fire away so yeah so it does have a be- does have a much bigger impact because you don't see him it's all done with smoke and shadows very well done really is yeah yeah i think the the shadowing obviously being a big sort of element of of german expression cinema is used to its fullest extent here but john you had um, some thoughts on the sort of the restoration the is it is it bfi is it criterion I think it was a BFI restoration. BFI restoration, um, which... Mm -hmm. No, it was just to say that that was due to the fact that in the... Because, obviously, as I said, Bram Stoker's widow was so determined to burn this film and not let it exist, that the only surviving copies, it was difficult to tell what was day and what was night, obviously, because things were shot in different ways and it was budgeting and all that back in 1922. So there is a kind of iconic scene in the non-restored version where it looks like Dracula's heaving a coffin across a town square in the middle of the day, which <laughs> will make you chuckle if you've, if you've seen it. But John, you had some thoughts on the, the restoration, the sort of colourisation that had gone into it as well. Yes, there was a certain amount of colour used, like they, they used, I think it was a green colour for when they were reading the book and there was yellow for the day and blue for the night. There was a, a really good use of colour because... There's one scene where 
I believe it's is it the the wife of Hutter she's staying with either relatives or friends while he's mm-hmm. away and she becomes ill and her husband says oh I'll go and get the servant and as soon as he goes out the the candle blows out because the window is open and the screen immediately goes from yellow to dark blue and it's so dramatic you go oh my goodness you know it's really well done that way and yet you're right if they hadn't done something like that then it would have looked a little off because they didn't have the same sort of lighting techniques that they they have well basically from from the 1930s on because a lot of it was shot on location as well you can see that there was well it may have been a film studio but there was a lot of outdoor filming done so yeah you have to differentiate between sort of day and night so and it wasn't really easy to do that i think they they did a good job of it but it doesn't work all the way through it just because it gets kind of mixed up sometimes in the way that they're actually using the color but it it kind of emphasizes the print that they've managed to restore as well because it, it looks absolutely stunning for a 1922 film it looks brilliant Compared to the one that I watched on YouTube this afternoon, which you could barely make it out. Like there's a, a wee scene at the start where uh, Hutter's wife is at the window and she's got a wee ball of wool and she's playing with the cat. And you can see that beautifully in the restored version, but seeing the version I saw, there wasn't a cat there. It was just a blob. It, just, it looked unbelievable. <laughs> it just looks so bad. So should be grateful for some things. But it's amazing that they managed to find and actually restore a print based on what you said you know that so many copies of it were destroyed quite soon after and when you look back in film history there's so many films that are just completely missing due to neglect or whatever but this was a particularly important film and if you think about it you know where would we be without these type of films it's it's something that influenced so many people over the years you you just wouldn't have the, the rich culture of horror films that you have now Exactly, and I watched the same restoration print that you were speaking about there, John, and I, I couldn't believe it either, that this was a film almost 100 years old, and I'm watching it going, so well restored. Now, we can argue about whether the use of colour works or not. I liked it for the most part, but I do agree at times, I was just like, it, I don't think thematically it worked towards the end of the movie, but for the first like, opening couple of minutes, I was blown away by how clear this picture was. It just looked like it had been made recently. It looked like it was almost made recently, but in the style of an older movie. Like The Love Witch? Yeah, it was something, it was something like that. It was almost like a kind of nostalgia piece. The score was great as well. It really kind of helped uh, the movie. I think that was written for the restoration because I did a wee bit of research on it and because the film has it sort of fell into disrepair for a long time, any time that they did a, a new version of it or re-released it, they had another score written for it. So the one that's actually on the restoration, I believe, is reasonably recent. It works really well because it mirrors the, the action. It's quite dramatic over the titles and then you've got about 15 minutes and it's all very nice and airy and light and then just subtly it gets a wee bit darker and a wee bit more ominous with the score and it just really complements the film. It shows the importance as well of film music which you, you can't really overlook to be perfectly no. honest. There's so many horror films you can think of you try and watch it with the sound off it's, it's, it's not the same, it's, it's a massive part in the movie, the music I mean, don't mm-hmm. you go back to talk about Jaws for example that we're discussing, imagine that film, a different score. Yeah, exactly There's quite a few different versions though of music, there's a, there's a jazz soundtrack, believe it or not <laughs> there's a sort of techno soundtrack and then you've got your sort of, sort of traditional like 
attempting to sound like a silent movie soundtrack. So I've watched quite a few different versions of it to see the different style of music. I do love the sort of old fashioned kind of plinky plunky piano that makes it sound like you are literally in a like a picture hall from the 1920s because it's so sweeping and over the top and I, and I do love that um, I haven't been able to track down the jazz soundtrack but I'm really determined to because I want to know what Nosferatu jazz sounds like and the nice. thing as well you mentioned so many like the copies been destroyed I was watching the movie earlier and obviously they've, <laughs> they've tried to change as much as they could to avoid copyright infringement and I'm watching the film going how did they get away with this and then I went and read they didn't <laughs> and I was like that makes sense apparently she was told the film wasn't going to make any money so she gave up trying to like actually sue Murnau and just decided to destroy as many copies as she could but film being filmed back then it was sent out all over the world um, you know productions were very much international so she obviously couldn't quite get her hands on every single copy and for that I'm eternally grateful. <laughs> so would you guys recommend this not even just as a, a horror movie but just as a sort of starting point for somebody who might be interested in getting to know silent cinema getting to know some German expressionism like what are your what would you use this as a starting point for somebody? I would yeah uh, like I mentioned earlier uh, you start saying things like silent movies and German expressionist cinema it can be a bit off-putting to the average film goer, let's be honest. And I include myself in that one. The appeal to me for this mostly was the fact that it was um, this old horror film, this iconic horror movie that I hadn't seen, so I was like, that it feels like something I should watch. But it is very accessible. It's an easy film to watch. You say it's a 90-minute runtime. It just flies in. Yeah, I'd agree with that. If you were compiling a list of films for someone who's never actually seen a movie, then this would be on that list. Probably, you know, if you had to make up 10 films, this would definitely be on it, just because its ideas and its images get repeated so often. And it's, it's good to understand where it came from rather than just accept it from watching an inferior copy of the same type of film from later on in the decade, you know, or, sorry, later on in the century even. I would love to see this in the cinema with a live orchestra. Mm. I was just thinking that when we were talking about soundtracks, actually, because every so often is it the Bones Hippodrome do silent movies and they will have an, like an organ player live. And I was like, God, this would be amazing to see that live on the on screen. It just would be good to sort of to feel it, sort of hear the swell of the music as it sort of carries the, the plot along. Because obviously with it being a, a silent movie, you are sort of maybe relying on soundtrack as opposed to the spoken word. But I just think it's, it's a really iconic piece of cinema. And I think that like everyone, there's sort of loads of gifts and stuff like that of like, you know, Nosferatu creeping up the stairs. And it's probably not the scariest movie you're ever going to see because it has been kind of done to death. But it's just it's so well executed. There's some like truly beautiful bits of cinema and beautiful shots. As John said, you could sort of pause it at any point and it's it's like a painting. And there's so many other movies that have Nosferatu to thank for their sort of existence. As I said, the vampire tropes came from came from this film. And I just think it's a really clever, kind of thrilling piece of work to actually watch. And it's amazing to think it's nearly 100 years old. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can imagine watching this film at a time and being pretty terrified, uh, especially when we're up the stairs and these long, shadowy fingers open the door. I think anybody that watches it now and claims to be scared by it is probably just at it and being a bit pretentious. But <laughs> pretentious? <think> that... Moi? <laughs> I think back then, if you've seen this, there's nothing else like this in cinema either. You are sleeping when the lights on. Yep. Plus, as I say, all the sort of rumours that they turned up about Shrek himself. You should definitely try and get a copy of that Shadow of the Vampire as well, because no one quite does crazy and unhinged and probably is a vampire like Willem Dafoe. 
<laughs> like yeah. if you think about his performance in the lighthouse this is like that times 100. <laughs> if you look at Max Shrek without the makeup and that on it, it there is similarities between the two of them you can see why we're not willing to fall his cast for a physical point of view as well it does look a similarity I would say. It's a good one to track down. Nosferatu isn't actually streaming on any services as far as I'm aware is it or did you guys YouTube. watch it on streaming service? It's on YouTube. There's a, a poor version of it on Amazon Prime at the moment as part of a double bill with the cabinet of Do- Dr. Caligari, but both films oh. are unrestored. They're they're not particularly good. Uh, it does have, it's one of the older versions with, I think it's one with a plinky plonky soundtrack, so it may appeal to some. <laughs> <laughs> Me. <laughs> well, I mean, I would, su- I would honestly suggest that if you are listening to this, that you try and track it down. It is one of the cinema greats. As, as Thomas said, it's one of those films you just sort of should see to understand the landscape of cinema, like in the century afterwards. I take it as a recommend from the both of you? Yeah, it is, yes. And it's definitely a recommend from me because, you know, I get very excited about my, my German cinema. <laughs> so, with Nosferatu being the subject of our, our pod, we decided to take a look at our favourite vampire movies. And these don't necessarily have to be films about vampires. They can just be films with vampires in them and as fate would have it I think I'm actually up first okay so my first pick is kind of a light-hearted look at the the vampire movie and it's 2014's What We Do in the Shadows which is written by directed by starring they probably like made all the costumes as well uh, Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi when you get three vampires in a flat obviously there's going to be a lot of tension Viago was an 18th century dandy. Look, a ghost cop. Vladislav is a bit of a pervert. This is my torture chamber. Deacon's like the young bad boy of the group. I'm supposed to pay rent, but I don't. And it's about a group of, it's kind of mockumentary, you would call it, about a group of vampires who are sort of struggling to adjust to modern life because they find themselves in a house where they, you know, have to pay rent. They want to go to social clubs. They want to start making friends. They're kind of running out of humans to to drink as well. So they do actually have to go out and, and talk to people. And it's just a really surreal, absurd take on vampires. And there's also a nice nod to Nosferatu, actually, the character of Peter, who lives in the basement in a dirt-filled coffin who looks exactly like Nosferatu. But it's it's so, like, I mean, they're all walking about in, like, frilly shirts and they have to sort of acclimatise to modern-day clothes and they're all, they're getting, they're fighting with each other, which sort of, they end up flying and their teeth are hanging out. There's a lot of, kind of, almost like the office-esque looks to camera from Taika Waititi because he can't quite believe like the shit that he's having to put up with basically and then of course there's my favourites the werewolves who are led by a really strict leader who doesn't allow them to curse which gives way to my favourite phrase what are we werewolves not swearwolves which is just I actually had to pause watching the film because I was pissing myself laughing I think if you like Taika Waititi's sense of humour, if you've seen uh, some of his other work, this is definitely right up your street. It's very sort of off the wall and it's just a kind of ridiculous take of what it's like to be a vampire in modern society. It doesn't take itself seriously. And actually, there's a really kind of fun fact of the guy that I think his name is Stu that plays the IT technician in the film. He did actually apply for a job advert to be an IT technician on this movie and they just ended up sort of casting him. 
So he's not an actor. And all of the sort of reactions that he has to the conversations in the movie are entirely genuine because he didn't know what he was getting himself into. I think they've made it into TV series now. I haven't, I've watched the first series, but I haven't watched the second, but the film has a very special place for me. It's absolutely hysterical. I take it you guys have both seen this. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely, yeah. It's okay, it's a cracking movie. I I love the, the swear wheels bit as well, but the explanation as well about why they like to drink the blood of virgins rather than people who have had sex is just uh, amazing as well. I won't uh, repeat it because it is quite sweary and everything, but it's quite, <laughs> it's just it's hilarious. A lot of it apparently was done without scripting and things. It just had outlines of scenes and they just took it from there. And it's just fantastic. The fact that it's set in New Zealand as well and people are really nice and everything <laughs> and they're having to get invited into clubs and oh man, yeah, it's really, really good. Yeah. I mean, it's really short as well, isn't it? It's only maybe about 80 90 minutes long it's not a long film yeah i've i've seen both seasons of the tv series as well and it's right up there the it's obviously different characters and different setting but yeah it works probably just as well because it's got the input from the, the original creators of it as well right the way through so all right works nicely good choice Sammy, I believe you're up next. Yep. I went with a classic movie in 1987's Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys, starring Kiefer Sutherland in both Corey's. This film really didn't much introduction. It uh, kind of revolutionised how we've seen vampires. And before then, we'd never really seen like, young, hip, cool teenage vampires. And with this, it kind of had a cultural impact. It made vampires cool. They weren't just a terrifying, scary monsters. <laughs> a party wanted to be one, even though they're quite cool the villains. <laughs> now, I went to see this film again uh, earlier on the year, just before everything kicked off. It's very much a product of this time. It could be a period piece in many ways. It's got 80s screaming from it, from the soundtrack to the look, everything. But it's still so much fun. It's got very darkly comedic moments to it, but although it is slightly absurd at times, it can laugh at itself. It's inviting you to laugh with it rather than at it. And it's just such a fun movie. And it's, it's pretty brutal. There are some pretty dark and violently graphic uh, death scenes. But yeah, it's just a total blast of a movie. I take it, you've both seen it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it works really well. Like you say, it's, uh, it's it's almost like the vampire equivalent of the, like, the likes of Young Guns and things like that, bringing in younger actors into it to make it a bit cooler. And it works really well. Kiefer Sutherland is amazing in it. He's just fantastic. He had a real sort of purple patch during those those films. Maybe maybe a run of maybe about four or five different films, and they were all good. And he was excellent in every single one of them. And he's a cool guy. And there's an Echo in the Bunnymen song at the start of it, which is a cover version of The Doors. People are strange. Just <laughs> works really well. Yeah, you've you've got the the layer and the big picture of Jim Boris in the wall mm-hmm. and. Just the soundtrack is just total 80s synth and things like that. And yeah. But I do, Kiefer Sutherland's amazing in it because he's just so charismatic and likeable, but really inherently dangerous. And he just drops with menace the entire movie as well. You know he's not a cool guy, he's not a good guy. You know mm-hmm. right from the minute you see him, he's a villain, even though he's really young and pretty looking. He just looks evil in his own way. Was Us not based on the start of Us, the film from last year, the Lupita Nyong'o film that we talked about previously? Was that not, did that not reference The Lost Boys at the start of it? 
because it was set in the same coastal town where the fun fair was meant to be there i think there was a, a link i may be wrong in that but I, th- I thought i read something about that at the time not sure this Good. movie also had two sequels believe it or not i did know that yes so that would, that would have partly appealed to you then wouldn't it if it, yeah, if it got to about six or seven then you'd have been oh yeah it was all a trilogy so i'd have the interest <laughs> i didn't realize there was sequels Oh yeah, they're both made like 20 odd years later and it's got at least Corey Feldman returning and it's a straight to DVD, very low budget. Oh, I see. I, I remember watching it, it was, I think it was Sunny World or something, it was a double bill for Halloween, it was The Lost Boys and Fright Night, which was a, a really good one to watch both vampire movies obviously. But no, I didn't know there were sequels, that's a shame. I mean, it's no surprise that you've picked a film with like really bad sequels to it, so I mean that is your gig, so. <laughs> that's my gimmick. <laughs> John, your first pick? My first pick is 30 Days of Night, which is a 2007 horror film from director David Slade, produced by Sam Raimi, and it stars Josh Hartnett, Melissa George, Danny Houston, and Ben Foster in quite an early role. It's basically set around the premise that in the most northerly town in the US, which is in Alaska, a town called Barrow, it is in total darkness for 30 days out of the year, which makes it the perfect hunting ground for vampires. So this is a Josh Hartnett joint. So he is the cool police. Well, he's, he's, I suppose he is kind of the, the local sheriff. And things start to go a wee bit strange on the last day of light. That's one of the first title cards you see. A bunch of mobile phones get destroyed. A guy seems to walk out of the snow from nowhere saying they're all going to be coming. And then uh, when it starts to get dark, the town is basically taken over by vampires. And because they have a month in order to feed their way through the town, then it's a bit of a cat and mouse game because all the locals, once they realise what's going on, hide and the vampires try to root them out one way or another. There is a fantastic central performance here from Danny Houston as the the leader of the vampires. I believe he's called Marlowe. He is horrifying. He's wearing this very pale, glistening makeup, but he doesn't shimmer. And (laughs) (laughs) he is just evil incarnate. He is so cold and he's just completely ruthless. There's an awful lot of blood in this film and it's beautifully shot, especially because you're you're talking about night scenes. So there's this very pale blue and so much of this film and it's atmospheric, but you're kind of on edge of their seat for about the second half of it because it's just really, really tense. You're in, in it with these people who are like hiding in attics and all sorts of wee cubby holes and just trying to not make a sound. It's just it's a an immense film. Absolutely brilliant. I take it you guys have seen this. Yeah, uh, I read the graphic novel uh, before seeing the movie. A friend of mine gave me it and I was, I was like, whoa, this is pretty brutal. And I heard we're making a film. I thought, how do I pull this off? Because this is really, really violent and gory and the vampires are nothing but just total monsters. There's no kind of sexual element to them you get in a lot of vampire movies. Maybe the ones that you seek out, yeah, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my next pick. personal collection. (laughs) Wait to see if you have a next pick, uh, Brace of the Vampire. But, no, I thought Freddy's a cracking film. Uh, The visuals... 
especially the blood against the white snow. Mm. Just, the, just the premise of it, you know, like the, a town in darkness. Yes. It's, it's a vampire feeding frenzy. But I find it interesting that David Slade followed up this movie by directing Eclipse, the third movie in the Twilight saga. <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, I am not a fan of the Twilight movies at all. It's I know, so you bring it up all the time. <laughs> <laughs> not only not for me, I just genuinely find they're not very good movies for the most part. Eclipse is a very good movie. And I came out of the cinema going, I really enjoyed that. I took my sister to see it and I was surprised. And I went home and went, David Slade directed that? And I thought, well, that makes sense. That makes sense for this was a bit, it was a better movie. And it is a bit more violent as well. Obviously, there's limited what you could do based on fact that it's still for kids. But yeah, done quite a good job considering what you had to work with. Did not know that. <laughs> Sorry, I haven't seen 30 Days of Night, but based on your description, John, I would quite like to watch it. It's kind of, I don't know if it sounds similar to that, Daybreakers, but I, I quite like the violence in that. That was good. There are certain thematic elements yeah. that cross over into uh, Daybreakers. 30 Days of Night is on Amazon Prime as part of their oh. offering, so give that a watch. I watched maybe about 40 minutes of it today, and I intend to go back and watch the rest of it again. So, yeah. I think you'd like it, Mary. It's good. Oh, that does sound good. I like violence. My next pick is the gloriously camp and homoerotic 1994 Neil Jordan movie Interview with the Vampire. This stars Christian Slater, Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise and sees a young, cute, adorable Kirsten Dunst as well. The story is basically that Brad Pitt is a vampire who's been interviewed by Christian Slater, who is a journalist, and that kind of kicks off the story to be told in flashback. And He narrates his life. He is over 200 years old and he becomes a vampire one night. He owns a plantation in the Deep South. His wife and child are killed and... Lestat, played by Tom Cruise, turns him into a vampire. The plot is quite interesting in the sense that it's Brad Pitt's character, Louis, doesn't really like being a vampire. He tries to survive off of like rats and small animals because he doesn't want to drink human blood. But Lestat is always this creeping presence in his life and he's this kind of snarling bad guy. It is ludicrously camp when you watch it now. There's a lot of, you know, sort of frilly shirts and flowing hair and and that is just the guys. And it's very, very sort of plays up on the erotic sense of, you know, vampires. There's a lot of images of, you know, heaving bosoms and low-cut corsets and like they play a lot on the the neck being bitten. But I remember when this came out, I was actually quite frightened of it. My mum and dad went to see it at the cinema because at the time my mum was going through her Brad Pitt with long hair phase. She actually had a calendar at one point and she will kill me for saying that, but she did. And she went to see it for that. And it came out in video maybe like a couple of years later. So I must have only been about seven. And when I watched it and I saw the scene where Kirsten Dunst is obviously playing the young child and her town's been overridden by plague also a link to Nosferatu. And she's sort of mourning the death of her mother and Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt offer her the escape and I was terrified because she was this beautiful like gold ringleted young girl with dimplets and they want to turn her into a vampire she loves it she's got an insatiable taste for blood so it was quite frightening at the time watching it watching it back more recently it is a little bit over the top and a little bit silly but it's got a good amount of violence in it Antonio Banderas crops up in it as well Stephen Rhea and it's just one of those if you watch True Blood it's kind of like that there's the good vampires and the bad vampires and it's all very over the top have you guys both seen this yeah yes I'm just thinking of the Ivan there as well that Antonio Banderas 
got, got the COVID. And as you were saying That's earlier, so it's just a cover for vampires. So maybe <laughs> Andrew Banderas is actually going to turn a vampire in real life. I didn't know he had COVID, but what a link. What a link. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like this. I love this film. I think it's great. I haven't seen it in a while, to be fair. And you're right, maybe some bits are a bit kind of sillier than they would have been at the time. But I love Tom Cruise, isn't it? He's just so gloriously over the top. You can tell he's having so much fun in the role. He's he just hands it up. Bad. He should do it more often. He is actually a good bad guy. He hams it up nicely, but he's also not not a, not a bad way. He's, he's not like hammy in a bad way. Like he's still pretty vicious in the role. Yeah. He's, he's still he's still very, he's still a bit crazy. The essence of the character very well, unlike the the sequel. Yeah. Wait a minute, there's a sequel to this as well. Yeah, Queen of the Damned. Oh, I didn't realise that was a sequel. My apologies. It's not good. <laughs> John, have you seen Entry with the Vampire yet? Yeah, um, similar opinion to Thomas. It's a fantastic film. It's one that gets referenced quite a lot as being a, a different Tom Cruise performance, like you say. And it, it works really well. And yeah, he's he's fantastic in it. Brad Pitt is very much overshadowed by Tom Cruise in this film, but that's not a bad thing. His character is no way as flamboyant or anything or biting or horrible and I think that's partly to do with the fact that he's playing a character that's hundreds of years old so he he really doesn't have any patience with anybody at all because he's he will have seen all types of people by the point that they they actually get to the end of it so yeah I I was I was very very impressed by it and again there's a nice wee link with the the birth of cinema in there as well when Brad Pitt gets to see a sunrise after several hundred years because he's able to see it in the cinema all all being black and white and uh, silent but you know sunrise is a sunrise let's face it I think when you're a hundred year old vampire you've got to take what you can get (laughs) well they usually do Christian Slater's very good in this film as well can't forget him so was there enough sexy time in this film for you Thomas or was it it I know that it's one of the more erotic vampire movies I thought you'd be all for this it's a bit tame Oh man. Right. Do you need somebody to be ripped from limb from limb after the vampires had their way with them? Is that what you go in for? <laughs> He's not going to tell us, Mary. I'm determined now to know what Zimmy's vampire porn collection looks like. <laughs> <laughs> that'll be that'll, that'll be the the Dirty Scenes podcast. I think my top three. <laughs> what have you been watching this week? Oh, just vampire porn, you know, usual. Zimmy, segwaying on to your next pick. Uh, my other pick is also a film from 1987, and it's Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. Caleb Colton no longer belongs to our world. We'll give him a week, see if we can call him one of us. He belongs to hers. But you have to learn to kill. He belongs to theirs. I want to kill. He makes a kill tonight. And they all belong to the night. I see this film almost like a, the big brother of the Lost Boys. In many ways, the stylistically they're very similar. They were released months apart as well, which is quite interesting because that have similar the films are in the plot. You got Adrian Pastar who plays this young man, kind of similar to the, in the Lost Boys. You have the character of Michael, and he falls in with a bad crowd and turns into a vampire. But this is like a bad vampire because he's about to kill anybody, but he has to because he's got the blood of the vampire and he needs to feed, but he's kind of resisting it. So they're very, very similar, except this movie's a lot, lot darker and a lot more violent, and not in a comic book way that The Lost Boys is. It's pretty hardcore. You've also got Bill Paxton, Lance Henriksen, and Jeanette Goldstein as the the vampires in this nomadic like tribe almost. 
And yeah, this this movie is almost like a, it's like a it's like a vampire western, but set in the then modern day, and it's just so so well done. I first seen it when I was younger. It was on TV one night, and I was kind of flicking about and watched it, and nobody else has seen it. And it wasn't until years later it became kind of like a cult movie. Uh, a lot of people kind of gave it the respect it deserved. There's a particular scene where they went to a bar and just start killing the patrons, but it's so drawn out. It's not the go in. It's just some crazy like manic bloodbath. They're torturing them psychologically. They're playing with them. And they're kind of daring them. If they're challenging them to fights, knowing they're vampires, they're just going to fuck people up. And Bill Paxton is incredible in this movie. Absolutely incredible. He's just so psychotic and a total sadist. Have Ari seen it? I have, yes. I saw it years ago. I've not seen it probably for maybe about 15 years or something. It was a massively impressive film at the time. I really enjoyed it. I couldn't remember too much about it though when you mentioned it there I had a wee look up at and I remember the Bill Paxton character being particularly good in it and obviously Lance Lance Henriksen as the he was the leader of the the gang yes yeah they were both particularly really good roles it's one that I, I really need to go back to because I think I watched it the first time because I was interested in Catherine Bigelow films I'd watched a couple of them and that had been recommended to me yeah, it's a very, very good choice. One of the great things with the film as well is how self-contained it is. They never actually use a vampire word, if I remember. They never actually refer to the characters as vampires. And by doing that, they don't have to then have what, the obvious exposition where they're sitting talking about, well, here's how you kill a vampire. You get a cross, you get some holy water, you get some sight. These things, for the certain lore, just happens to intertwine throughout the movie. Mm. And it happens naturally. And... Yeah, it's just a, I don't use the word realist vampire film, because I'm still very obviously supernatural beings, but there's no lot of backstory to the characters. Things just are how they are. Continuing the theme of Mary hasn't seen any films ever, um, I haven't seen this film. <laughs> At least I didn't think it was Maverick. I'm learning. It's a Western as well. I know, and yeah, I resisted the urge. No, but I haven't seen it, but that does sound really good as well, actually. Like, I like the more sort of violent ones are the ones that are more kind of, like, psychological, and that bar scene that you were describing sounds pretty horrific. Well, it's, it's pretty because it's just so drawn out, like I was saying, you keep thinking to yourself, they'll just torture on these people because they, not just because they can, because they're actually just bastards. It's almost like they're not yeah. bastards because they're vampires. They're bastards because they're bastards. They're just happens to be vampires. <laughs> They don't have to be doing what they're doing. They just like it. Yeah. Oh, no, that sounds horrific. Did no one ever tell them not to play with their food? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was piss poor. <laughs> John, your next pick? My next pick is the 2003 film Underworld, which was directed by Len Wiseman. Stars Kate Beckinsale, Scott Speedman, Michael Sheen and Bill Nye. It is your basic vampires versus werewolves film, but not in a comedy way. You have the Kate Beckinsale character of Celine, who is a death dealer. She is a vampire who hunts the lichens, the werewolves. And for some particular reason, she finds that the lichens are targeting certain people. And she follows one of them, a guy called Michael. And she saves him from the lichens and tries to figure out why they are interested in him. At the same time, there's all sorts of politics going on within the vampire community as well, with people who want to take over and people who are trying to work behind the scenes and everything. It's a beautifully stylish film. There's lots of rubber outfits, which would 
appeal to certain members of the panel this evening. <laughs> it, it's very silly. I can say that without too much argument coming from anybody else. But it's a cracking action film. It's it's all gunfights and sword fights and all sorts of things. And it's, it's a spectacle film more than anything else. But it's a real romp and it totally works, especially where you're dealing with vampire lore. There's a very interesting element to it where a, a vampire is basically in charge and the other sort of main members of the coven basically sleep they sleep for a century or two centuries or whatever and they basically take in turns to be in charge so that they they're they're living longer they're not aging because vampires do age they're not eternal apparently in this universe it works really well bill nye just choose scenery like nobody else as a vampire and Michael Sheen as the the leader of the Lycans is just phenomenal he's just so funny because he is just completely over the top he is a hirsute gentleman and he he makes the most of that in his role as the the leader and some of the the comments he has especially for the the other werewolves who are all just sort of meaty big beefcake type of guys and they're they're not particularly intelligent they are basically just uh, big dogs if you like more than anything (laughs) it's just it it works really well there were four other films in this so it almost makes the whole series interesting to 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 you thomas i would imagine that's that's almost on the cusp of (laughs) (laughs) sequelitis but uh, they do get progressively worse unfortunately which is another thing I can see your wee eyes lighting up there (laughs) yeah I I, I was in the third one and I was in the the prequel but I did go and see the the fourth fourth one in the cinema Mm. and I was just like Jesus this isn't good I didn't think the second one was that good either to be fair the first one I thought it was okay as a film I expected to enjoy more than I did when I watched Mm -hmm. it yeah yeah they they do rapidly go downhill the Considering that they built, they built up quite a good backstory within the first film, they didn't exploit it in the way that you kind of thought they would, which is a little unfortunate. But it does work. Mary, have you seen this? No, and to be honest, I think that sounds like my idea of hell. Like, it just sounds like Twilight with more fighting. Just like something I would enjoy. No, I, I would give the first one a go. Definitely because it's it's a particularly good action film. If you just treat it as an action film with, you know, vampires and doggies, then you're, you're good to go. But yes, it's not one that you're going to take particularly seriously in any way. Yes, yeah, No, I mean, I do remember them being out. Yeah, I remember them being out at the cinema. It just it didn't interest me at the time. And probably be, if I'm being honest, I'll be at the bottom of my uh, to-watch list. <laughs> no, no, fair enough. So my last pick is the 2008 Thomas Alfredson film, Let the Right One In, starring names I'm going to fuck up, Carrie Hedbrandt, Lena Lee Anderson and Per Ragnar. It's set in Stockholm and it basically tells the story of Oscar who is really lonely. He lives in a sort of apartment block. He's getting really badly bullied at school and he notices the young girl Ellie who plays in the sort of, I mean they call it a playground, it's just some steel outside their uh, apartment block but she only comes out at night and he really wants to get to know her because he's curious about her but she won't come into his apartment without being specifically asked in, which Oscar was the clue that she is not human. 
and kind of against the backdrop of their sort of unlikely friendship forming, which is actually really quite sweet for a vampire movie. There's a series of local murders that are quite brutal and quite graphic. And obviously, as the film progresses, you realise that Ellie's keeper is committing these murders in order to help her get her blood supply. It's a kind of unusual vampire film because the vampire, like you were saying, Thomas, is a child, but she's not one that's presented as like, you know, cool. She's very like ghoulish looking in her appearance. She's extremely pale. Her hair is all sort of ratty, but she gives Oscar this friend that he hasn't had. And although obviously any time he sort of accidentally cuts himself, she is sort of really trying not to drink the rest of him. There is a kind of sweet friendship at the heart of this. And as you were saying earlier about, you know, blood on snow, there's definitely a lot of this with it being set in, in winter in, in Sweden. But I just, I really like it because it's quite an unusual take on the vampire movie because at the heart of it really is this quite sweet friendship. Have you guys seen it? Yeah. There's a remake as well, an English language remake, inevitably. But I prefer this version. I feel like it gets the tone a lot better. And I thought the two child actors at the, the heart of this were absolutely excellent. I didn't see the remake, but I have seen this, yeah, not since it came out in the cinema. But yeah, I like this film. Yeah, it's, it's basically a, an art house vampire film. It's yeah. very much a low-key, low-budget film, and it's beautifully shot. And there's a, a really sort of lovely haunting soundtrack on it. And when you get the violent elements in it, they are genuinely shocking because of the the pacing of it and the way that you're kind of drawn in just to the, the I, I know this is wrong, but the, the human story of it, just the, yeah. the lonely wee boy and how he, he needs somebody to connect with. Yeah, it's, it was a wonderful film. Is Simi your last pick? I went with a Russian movie for my last pick, and that's the 2004 film Nightwatch. I'm not even going to try and pronounce the Russian name for it. Uh, I'll try my my best to be a director. I was by Timur Begmabetov, and based on the novel series by Sergei Lukimenko. This basically tells the story of the modern-day Russia, but you have these supernatural beings called the Others, basically humans with powers, and you've got the light side and the dark side, and a not-so-subtle nod to the Cold War. They're locked in this eternal stalemate that one side can't get one over on the other. So you've got the Night Watch, who's been set up to be like a kind of quasi-police force to police the bad guy, the eat the dark side, so to speak, and vice versa. And the story kind of revolves around the main character, Anton Gorodetsky, who, although he's a hero of the movie, so to speak, is a far cry from like Kate Beckinsale and Underworld, who's this ultra-cool, great action hero. He's a bit rubbish. <laughs> his job he's just a grunt he's just a, he's a, a low level policeman so to speak he's not necessarily this great fighter this great like, combat guy but he gets into a bit of a feud with the the dark others when he interferes with a couple of vampires that try to feed and it becomes a bit of a political like, dilemma in a way where he kills one of the vampires and the dark side of the world really like this because you're kind of upsetting the balance now, and it starts kind of, kind of hijinks and sues from there. But, but this is a this is a brilliant film, and when it first came out, the fact that it was Russian, he hadn't really seen anything like this from a movie based in that side of the world. It was this over-the-top, crazy action horror movie, the, a very low budget and quite impressive special effects to go with it. Uh, Danny Boyle and Tarantino both raved about this movie when it first came out, there was a sequel, it was also Russian, and then the director just kind of gave up doing it after that and went and made Wanted. And whether you like that film or not, you kind of don't know if that's a good choice or not. I thought the film was quite good. But he never went back to the series, and there's been talks for 
years of English language remakes or eventually making the third movie, the trilogy, but no, never happened. And it's a shame because they're good films. This, the first one's a lot better than the second one. The second one is a bit of a confusing movie at times and doesn't translate into English as well as this one does. Stylistically, it's fantastic as well. The, the subtitles are even stylized, so it's really accessible for an audience that might be put off by a foreign language movie. There's a scene when the kids in the water and the vampires telepathically speaking to him and it appears on the screen as blood and drips off the screen. And that sounds cheesy and it is, it's just it's really well done. There's a scene where the characters shout and the subtitles get bigger. It's a part of, it's a part of the narrative itself. It's, it's very well done. Have you seen it? Shamefully, no. I have Nightwatch and I have Daywatch sitting on the shelf behind me, but I have never cracked the spine on them and watched them. So yes, it's, it's one I've, I've Always looked, thought, oh, I could watch it a Russian language. Now you're all right. And then <laughs> always think about it and never watch it. And I think I really should now. I am shamed into not having seen it. It's probably one of a number of films that I've got there that I haven't watched. Mary has watched this, haven't you? I actually have. Honestly, <laughs> yeah. I can't tell you how happy I am right now. <laughs> like, I am thrilled. And the only reason I watched it is because I'm pretty sure I was doing Slavonic studies in uni at the time. And the lecturer was talking about um, the sort of political themes within it and the kind of pop art style subtitles that you were talking about. And that is why I have seen it. And I remember putting my uni head on, thinking about all the political themes on it at the time, but was just so wrapped up in how cool it looked. It's a really, really beautiful film to watch and yes i have seen it here for, for all of our listeners but yeah as you say the other kind of the, the, the themes are very much russian themes and soviet themes it's very much a movie for that audience but because of this because of the kind of movie it is it does translate very well as it's just like a supernatural yeah. action movie even the idea of like the the bad guys being policed in that way is a very soviet way of <laughs> doing yeah. things so it's quite clearly made for that audience but as you see it it just works it's a it's a really cool film to watch actually it's quite quite good film to look at john you're less i know you're going to get me back with something i haven't seen anyway so it's fine <laughs> I, I very much doubt it with this choice it is the 2002 film blade 2 which is part of the blade trilogy blade we represent the ruling body of the Vampire Nation. They're offering you a truce. They want to meet with you. You sure about this? They'll take us in deeper than we've ever been. Now, those he has sworn to kill need his help to fight a new breed of terror. They're no longer top of the food chain. Our forces are ready to fight, but we need a leader. Let me get this right. You want me to hunt them for you? This is a film that is directed by Guillermo del Toro. It stars Wesley Snipes as the main character of Blade with support from Chris Christopherson, Ron Perlman, Norman Reedus and Luke Goss of Bros fame as the, the main baddie, really, yes. The film falls on from the, the first Blade film, which was a pretty big success i would say it got very very good reception and it warranted a sequel so in the sequel we find blade still trying to protect the humans from the vampires in this one which is a a little bit of a spoiler for the the first film he is hunting down his 
friend Whistler, who is also his or also was his mentor. And in doing so, he actually gets in touch with other vampires because rather than they think that Blade is a threat, there is a new threat out there, which is the Reaper virus, which uh, has created a new type of vampire that not only kills humans but also kills vampires as well so blade has to form a bit of an alliance with the vampires called the blood pack to hunt down the reaper which is played by luke goss as i said and basically all hell breaks loose it's violent it is (laughs) really fast energetic lots of pretty good choreography there's like sort of small roles for the likes of Donnie Yen in there as well who is just fantastic uh, slashing all sorts of people and vampires and stuff there's a really nice way that they're dispatched basically if they're shot with silver the the vampires basically burst into flames and just disappear really quickly which just works really really well it's really stupid the film it doesn't really tax you in any way there is very little character development apart from character of whistler and you can kind of see where everything is going in terms of the plot it's not going to tax you but you will really enjoy the film because it's just nuts and it's really enjoyable i love the fact that so it's the fact that there's a movie that exists in this world that's directed by del toro and has not only Luke goss but Danny John Jules have read the war fame. Yes. <laughs> and it's a Marvel movie. <laughs> I know, I know. It's 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 amazing. It's it was one of the first darker Marvel films, if you like, obviously well in advance of I mean you're talking about six years before Iron Man or in the the, the whole MCU thing. And obviously now it's going to be coming back in a couple of years' time, which will be interesting to see. Have you I take it you've seen this, Thomas? Yeah, I've seen all the Blade films. Mary? <laughs> I have not seen a single Blade film. <laughs> I swear. I feel like I just avoid films with like sequels. Every time like we get all, like, one of these big franchisey movies that everyone's seen, I'm like, nope, I was probably watching like, I don't know, Metropolis or The Golem when that was popular. <laughs> Blade is on Amazon Prime and what I would just watch the first five minutes. Okay. Watch the first five I believe they're bringing it back with, is it Mahershala, Mahershala Ali is bringing it yes. back to the MCU, is that correct? Which I would watch that, But yeah, yeah, I would just, just, watch, just watch the first five minutes of Blade, uh, you'll know if it's for you or not. If you don't get to the end of the five minutes, then you're not going to watch the rest of the movie, but if you finish those five minutes and go, yeah, well, I want to see the rest of that, it's for you. It's yeah, like, an like, iconic opening. Good shout, yes. Okay. Yep. I'm intrigued. I definitely want to watch the 30 Days of Night. If that's on Prime, I definitely will give that a watch. So there endeth our TED Talk on our favourite vampire movies and Nosferatu, some with some more obvious links to the 1922 film than others. So on Twitter, I, mean, I said about the best vampire movies were, and Reese uh, Rubberger got back to me and he agrees with John, 30 Days of Night. Nice, good choice. Sounds like a sound person. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to see this now. <laughs> There's obviously not much going on this week. We're all three very depressed Cineworld card holders that can't get to our local multiplex to watch whatever's coming out. They keep teasing that Tenant is coming out on the 31st of August. That seems highly unlikely. So in movie news this week, there was an announcement that Mulan, which was a hotly anticipated summer blockbuster release before vampires stroke the plague, stroke COVID happened, 
is going to move to Disney Plus for a fee of $30. Now, Disney have said this is great value for a family who may go to the cinema to see it. Others are saying that they're actually pushing a film that has a person of colour at the uh, front and centre of the story onto home release. So there's been a lot of debate about this. What do you guys think? Do you think that it, the producers should wait until Milan can open the cinema? And do you think $30 is value for money? Based on, we had a recent discussion about this in a previous podcast available in the Movie Scramble archives, where I said no originally when we were talking about the film Trolls, but both of you changed your mind on it. We said we've taken into account a family go to see the movie and maybe go to see the film a few times. That's cracking value. For somebody like myself who would go to cinema alone most of the time, that's horrific value. Wow. <laughs> you know, pantomime all there for Simi. Yes, we'll just put that in later. Uh, yeah, so I, when I first seen it, I balked at it to be fair. But yeah, they're right. They're, they're right. Unfortunately, um, you get a family of four, maybe five even, and they can rent that and watch it a few times before it, it gets deleted. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's it's just purely a financial thing. It's got nothing to do with people of color. If you look at Disney's output over the last couple of years, they have been more than representative of um, all genders and colours and everything. So I don't think it's really got anything to do with that. People are latching on to that because they want something to latch on to. It's purely the fact that Disney have not posted any sort of profits uh, this year at all. I think there was mentioned something like 4.6 billion or something that their estimates were down in terms of their profits for uh, the first quarter, which shows you how much money they actually make. I think they're purely trying to get some money. And and the the way that it is just now, it's not the film like Mulan isn't going to come out in the States anytime soon. So they're, if they keep pushing it back and pushing it back, then they're just pushing back other stuff and that just creates all sorts of other problems. So I think they just want to get it out there and start earning from it. And you're, you're right, Thomas, $30 or the equivalent of about £23 is a lot if you're just sitting on your own watching it. But yeah, these films are pretty much made for family viewing and I suspect what will happen is after maybe about four months, maybe maybe even less, maybe even like two, three months, it will just go into Disney Plus as part of their service anyway. So if you're not bothered about watching it to begin with, then it will be there for you. So you, you will be able to watch it in the comfort of your own home with your Mulan outfit on, no doubt. I don't know who that's aimed at, me or Simi. <laughs> oh, that's aimed at Simi, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I could see him as a warrior. A warrior princess. (laughs) I've never seen Mulan. I have seen the cartoon, and to be quite honest with you, because the live action version does not have a version of Donny Osmond singing I'll Make a Man Out of You, it kind of lost my interest. That was like the best thing in that film. (laughs) If you ever listen to Now That's What I Call Disney, like the sad person I am, you'll know how much of a good tune that is. So, yeah, it was a film that I wasn't buzzing to see that over the summer. My big excitements were always going to be Bond and Tenet, so I probably will wait till it becomes available free of charge. I don't really fancy paying 20 odd quid for a film that I'm only lukewarm about. I think it could be, be quite interesting as well the fact that the cinemas are reopening and it's a harder to say. I, I can see why it would appeal to some people, but they might not get the reaction they think they will because things are starting to go back to normal for the most part. And when Trolls came out, 
we were in total lockdown. Yeah. So the, so the it was also cheaper. It was also like 15 quid or something. So it was like half the price. Yeah, I don't think you had to say if there's a person top of that either. So I still think it's good value for money for you're talking about taking like a family to the cinema. I don't think it's going to be the big box office hit that they're expecting. I think they're looking at trolls and thinking it's going to be like that. I don't think it will be. I think they're going to be slightly disappointed. So it's like just a, a hunch. Yeah, it's a gamble. It definitely is. There's there's another way of looking at it. There, it's getting sort of desperate as far as filmmakers are getting now. So yeah, it's it's very unusual and it has shaken a lot of people. You can see that, and a lot of industry insiders are saying it's kind of unprecedented. It's not what they were expecting. They were expecting it just to get put back again and again. But yeah, it's a bold move. We'll see if it pays off though. Yeah, I'd be interested to see because Trolls released their receipts, didn't they, from the home release they had said how many millions or whatever they made it'd be interesting to see if Disney do the same mm, yeah well if it's a, if it is a success yeah we'll see that but if they're quiet then people will just make up their own mind won't they yeah that's true that's true well thank you so much for joining us on this uh, 30th episode of the movie scramble podcast I do feel a little bit excited saying that given that this only started because Sammy and I got John drunk one night and made him commit to <laughs> recording these <laughs> Obviously, if you want to get in touch with us, if you've got any ideas about what you'd like to hear on the pod, get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the email address, which is podcast at moviescramble.co.uk. Yes. Yeah. Thumbs up from John. That gave me the right email address. And if you want to let us know what your favourite vampire movies are, also get in touch on the usual channels. Have a good one. Speak to you soon. Bye.